My name is Roger Furlow. I bring you greetings from two parishes in Chicago, where I've come from. St. John Chrysostom, where I'm the senior priest in residence, at least for a while, and my home parish, St. Paul and the Redeemer in Hyde Park. It's wonderful to be here. Those of you who, like me, are art history geeks might recall the way that the great 14th century painter Giotto depicts the scene from this morning's gospel when Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. It's in a fresco that Giotto painted on commission for a chapel in Padua, which was built for the wealthy Scrovegni family. As you enter the chapel and face the fresco, on your right, you see Lazarus, whom Giotto depicts standing erect and rigid, but only his face is visible. The rest of his body is still bound in a tightly wound shroud, like a baby in swaddling clothes. At the bottom right, two young men are depicted preoccupied grappling with the heavy stone slab they'd just removed. One of them is facing us with a blank stare, and the other is bent over with his back to us, clearly straining with the weight of the stone that had covered the tomb. And in the middle of the picture, two haloed figures kneel at Jesus' feet. Perhaps these are Lazarus's two sisters, Martha and Mary. But then again, on the left, there is another woman depicted standing close by Lazarus' erect and shrouded figure. She and the women, woman behind her are clutching their veils to their noses, and one of them also sports a halo. I like to think that one is Martha, holding her nose, still worried about the stink. She warned Jesus about this, as you just heard, like her sister sharply reminding him that it had taken him four days to get back to Bethany after he'd heard of his friend Lazarus's death, and that by now the corpse stinks. And this is the same grieving Martha who, like her sister, in her anger on Jesus' late arrival, had accused him to his face. If you had been there on time, she shouts at him, my brother would never have died. But now, in Giotto's picture, Jesus has arrived, and he has graciously absorbed Martha's anger, the gospel writer tells us. He even weeps with her and her sister. Giotto depicts him now standing to our left across from the empty tomb, and his disciples cluster behind him. His eyes are now dry of tears and his hand is outstretched in, in what seems a gesture of, of blessing. His composure seems out of sync with the mood of the crowd of mourners who cluster on the other side of the divine behind the rigid and now resurrected corpse of Lazarus. That crowd seems frozen in fear and amazement, huddling as if to protect themselves from Lazarus's glare. They looked like they'd just seen a zombie. 
a revenant, a vision of the living dead. But in just a moment, what we know from the gospel reading we just heard is that this whole Halloween scene will turn itself upside down. Giotto, in this picture, has in effect suspended, suspended gospel time. He's captured the charged moment that separates Lazarus's emergence from the tomb from the moment when his sisters will scramble to extricate the brother they love from that straitjacket of a shroud. Unbind him, shouts Jesus. Unbind him and let him go. And with that, with what joyful abandon Mary and Martha untangle that swaddle of a shroud, well, that Giotto leaves to our own emboldened imagination. In other words, Giotto leaves it up to us to imagine the moment that matters most in this morning's gospel story, the moment when his family embraces Lazarus again, not as a stinking corpse hidden and sealed in the tomb, but as their beloved brother, living and breathing among them. Whereas in almost every healing story in the Gospels, the most telling moment, the most transgressive moment, is not the moment of Lazarus's remarkable recovery. I mean, there were, after all, a lot of itinerant healers famous in Jesus' day. People were used to hearing stories like this. What's transgressive about Jesus' healing power in these stories is his insisting that the one who has been treated as untouchable, as the very object of the community's fear of contagion or pollution, their fear of death, well, that one is now to be restored to their midst and touched and embraced. You see, it's not so much Lazarus whom Jesus unbinds. It's those who gather around Lazarus's tomb, the people who had despaired of his life, people who had been consumed by fear and dread and anger. Lord, Martha had said, if you'd been there, my brother would never have died. Little did she know, Jesus' saving act unbinds Martha from her anger as surely as Lazarus is unbound and freed from his tomb. So pause a moment. What would it mean for you and for me to feel ourselves unbound like that, to be unbound from any grief or anger that we feel as Martha felt standing by her brother's open tomb? What would it mean for us to feel restored to wholeness and peace of mind even in the midst of fear and change and loss? What would it feel like to be unbound from our own anger and from our own prejudices, to be unbound from our grudges, our resentments, even from our need for revenge. 
What would it feel like to be unbound in these heated days from the toxic rantings on Twitter or Facebook or cable news or the internet? What would it feel to be unbound from what many of us feel is a gnawing sense of helplessness in these troubled times? Or is this so often the case for so many of us who fear seeing Jesus face to face, how would it feel to be unbound from our own doubts, from the sense of our own unworthiness, unbound from our own fear of ourselves being touched by Jesus as Martha and Mary and Lazarus were touched, however that touch might manifest itself in our own lives. In short, what would it mean to be unbound from our most basic fear? Our fear of death. Not just the death of our bodies, but the death of our deepest sense of who we are. The death of what gives us our identity, the death of whatever it is about ourselves, our wealth perhaps, our possessions, our privilege, our jobs, our reputation, whatever it is about us that the loss of which we fear would transform us into living corpses bound up in the shrouds of our own devising. As first world Americans, many of us may be experiencing in recent days and months what it means to live in such fear. Fear that we're losing our privileged status in the world, perhaps. For some others, fear of the outsider, fear of the refugee, fear of the weakest and most despised among us, in spite of all appearance, insisting that they constitute the greatest threat to our own identity. Fear of a ragtag caravan of innocent men, women, and children trudging northward toward Mexico as they flee their country's political violence. Fear of a minion of elderly Jews gathered in the upper room of a Pittsburgh synagogue to bless the birth of a child. Fear of a black child swimming in a neighborhood pool, or a black woman canvassing for votes, or a black man working as a caregiver for two white children. Fear that our political culture will succeed in legitimizing fear as a vehicle of power. So we gather here today in the safety or I should say after what happened last week in Pittsburgh, in the relative safety of this cathedral, to remind ourselves and then to proclaim that we will not give in to baseless fear. Let me use the language of the writer of the first letter to Peter and to say that to cling to such fears, to allow such fears to define us, is to give aid and comfort to the evil one still roaming in our midst like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As Paul declared to his first congregations, to embrace Christ's liberating love is to declare that the fear of death no longer has dominion over us. Death is not in charge of us. Time and again we hear it in scripture, fear not, said the angel Gabriel to a stunned young Mary. I would not have you be afraid, 
says Jesus to his cowering disciples, do not be afraid. In Christ, we cannot deny our fears or our anger any more than Martha could, but we need not let fear bind us in a winding shroud, whatever shape that fear might take, whether it's our fear of the refugee or our fear of change or it's our fear of the racist and the demagogue. Unbind us from our fears, we pray to God, the God who dwells among us in the company of all the saints, apostles, and martyrs whom we celebrate on this feast day. Unbind us from our fears and let us go. Restore us to our better selves. Well, we're about to enact a ritual of that unbinding of that divine liberation here at this font as we witness the baptisms of these fearless children. Marie and Annunciata, Alexander and Harris, Ty and Kylie, Vivon, Simeon, James, and Charlotte. Remember those names. What a great cloud of fresh new witnesses to God's patient and enduring love. And so as we gather around them in the organized chaos here, in solidarity with the parents and godparents who will nurture and raise them, we will proclaim that in these waters of baptism, these children too, like Lazarus, like all of us, have been unbound, set free, loosed from their swaddling clothes, restored to wholeness and renewal of life. Now look, we baptize these kids knowing full well they will not always be happy. They will not always have nothing to fear. I mean, there's no magic going on here in this baptism, in this ritual. There's no denying reality. I mean, I'm a parent, and now thanks to Annunciata down there, I'm a grandparent too. I get to baptize my own granddaughter. I can say from experience, that what these parents will soon learn, if they've not learned it already, is that it will not be easy always to unwrap the swaddling clothes. It will not always be easy to let these children go, to let them roam, stumble, and learn what freedom looks like. I mean, that's in fact what grandparents and godparents are for. <laughs> I mean, if I live long enough, I look forward to hearing what life is like for all you parents, say, 15 or 20 years from now, when these children are teenagers or young adults, as they struggle to assert their own identity and find their own callings in a world far removed from what we, their parents and grandparents and godparents, might have known when we were their age, a world likely to be transformed by climate change and the internet, and whatever our uncertain political future holds for us, transformed, not to mention transformed by the unpredictable chances and changes that attend all of us simply as we, as we live our lives. But there's good news here. In the promises we'll stand to make in a few minutes, in a few moments this morning, make before God, we will guarantee, are you ready? We will guarantee that come what may, and with God's help, we will do everything in our power to grant these children 
the freedom to grow and flourish into lives marked by acts of compassion and reconciliation grounded in Jesus' example. We will teach them by our own word, by our own example, teach them to respect the dignity of every human being, to renounce the forces of wickedness that today seem everywhere to be in ascendance, to resist the forces of evil that will strive to separate children and to separate us from the love of God and the embrace of our neighbor. Not just the safe neighbor, not just a safe embrace of the nearest neighbor, but the risky embrace of the stranger, the migrant, the refugee, the prisoner. For we learn in this gospel that in the faces of neighbors like these, we are sure to encounter the face of Christ himself. So let's do it. Let's organize this chaos. Let's gather by the river, gather at this font, and let this be our prayer. In the waters of baptism, O Christ, unbind these your servants, as we ourselves have been unbound, and rejoice with us and all the saints as we celebrate in this holy place the sacrament of new birth. Amen.